Miracy. I mean, for me, permission would be that I have a look of curiosity and a look of joy and a look of acceptance in my body language so that the children know that what they're doing is okay to do. They're not looking at me saying, oh, she's judging me, I'm not supposed to be doing that. Hi, it's Teacher Tom and welcome to my podcast where we take play seriously. The idea, process over product, is a reaction to the all too common practice of marching kids obediently through step-by-step craft projects that produce cookie cutter results. If we want children to be creative, critical thinkers, instead of rote rule followers, we must value their process over all else. That's what we say. When you see a preschool wall full of matching teddy bear art, we tell parents, run like the wind. Today on the podcast, I talk with pedagogical consultant, Suzanne Axelson, the author of the book, The Original Learning Approach, and the blog, Interaction Imagination. Over the years, Suzanne and I have had dozens of deep, wide-ranging, and often profound conversations which is the reason I'm so excited to have her on the podcast. A couple years ago, for instance, she called into question this bedrock idea of process over product. I was at first dumbfounded. I mean, process over product is central to the play-based approach. But Suzanne asserted that product can be at least every bit as important as process. Children are often very proud of their products, she said. They are often deeply connected to them. It was this perspective, as simple as that, that allowed me to realize that process over product was an oversimplification that can lead us to be unintentionally dismissive of what children produce. The final product, be it art or anything, is as important as the child deems it. And when working with young children, it's important that we steer clear of the temptation to oversimplify things just because they're young. Hi, Suzanne. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to get to talk to you, Suzanne. I've known you for quite a while, and we've had many conversations. And one of the things I want the audience to know is that one of the things I treasure about you is often you say things that I find incredibly challenging, and I have to really process them because they fly in the face of what I thought was true sometimes. But you've really opened my eyes to a lot of new perspectives. And that's really what this podcast is all about, is getting some new perspectives out there. I know that you are always in process of thinking of new things and considering new perspectives and new ideas. I mean, you travel the world seeking out new perspectives. And this is why I really want to talk to you about your book that came out last year, The Original Learning Approach. And I love the subtitle, Weaving Together, Playing, Learning, and Teaching in Early Childhood. So, you know, I guess original learning, what is that about? I find even that title challenging, so I'd love to hear you talk about it so I can start processing. I mean, it came because I felt incredibly frustrated about this dichotomy of work and play and teaching and play, and that you could either only be play-based or you were teaching an academic and worksheets, and there was nothing in between. And I was so desperate to find the, the dawn and dusk of early childhood, and that it didn't have to be day and night all of the time. So original learning was very much the space of how is learning and teaching and playing woven together where every single part is of equal value, that not one bit is saying you're lower on the hierarchy. No, it's everything is equally valued. And I think this is the the essence of why original learning came about. 
Yeah, well, it, it's it's interesting because I know that in the materials that came with the book, you said a lot of it's based on Reggio Emilia or at least inspired by Reggio. But I know you're also inspired by Anji Play, the Chinese model. I know that you're inspired by a lot of different things. I mean, even the mm. concept of the weaving, you know, kind of comes from the New Zealand tefariki, right? The woven mat of education. I guess, where was the inspiration? Where do you start? What's the starting point for coming up with an original learning approach? Desperation. <laughs> I, I think I needed a space for me to think about my own pedagogy and to find a space that allowed me to weave all of these things together. I think I think I looked at like people like Malaguzzi and David Hawkins and how they pulled different disciplines together and different research and picked out, you know, they're cherry picking and to create what felt meaningful for them together with the children that they were with. And I wanted to try and create something that stimulated myself, but also other educators and parents to think about, well, how can I cherry pick? How can I do this? How can I reflect? And how can I feel strong in making the decisions that feel right for me and my child and my group and the children I work with? All right. As you know, I call myself a, a play-based educator. And I guess so one of the things that sort of strikes me when you talk about this that I find challenging, and we've talked about this before, and I don't find it as challenging as I used to, is just the very idea that children need permission to play. Now, tell me about that, because to me, that was always anathema. So they, they have the right to play, blah, blah, blah. But you've made a good case for permission. Yeah. I mean, I mean the whole idea of permission to play is that technically adults have colonized play as well. And that we forget about just how much power we have over children, just in that every day, just by being in the room. And I think the permission to play is not about the children, it's about us. It's about our understanding of our power and what we're doing to ensure that children do feel that they can play as an autonomy, not do certain actions that look like play. And I think often there's quite a bit of confusion between those two different things. So permission to play, yeah, it does sound challenging. Even to me, I think, I don't think I would even use that myself as much as I did before. I needed to go through that to understand the power structures of adults and children. Well, maybe you could give us an example of what permission might look like in a preschool setting. I mean, for me, permission would be that I have a look of curiosity and a look of joy and a look of acceptance in my body language so that the children know that what they're doing is okay to do. They're not looking at me saying, oh, she's judging me. I'm not supposed to be doing that. So it's it's kind of the energy and the look I give. I mean, I remember as a child, you know, adults could give me a certain look and I knew I wasn't supposed to be doing that. And I have very vivid memory of standing on top of the slide in my back garden as a child. I must have been about eight. I had just announced to all of my friends that I was Wonder Woman and I could prove it to them. And I looked across to my home and I could see my mum looking out of the kitchen window and she looked angry. And of course, I thought it was because I had just lied that I was Wonder Woman. And I l remember it now and I realized that she wasn't. She was looking a little bit cross because she was concerned about the fact I was stood at the top of this really high slide <laughs> and it looked dangerous and she wanted me to stop. I misinterpreted it completely. 
I did make the big jump. I never needed to do it again. It's like I'd proven to the world I was Wonder Woman. But yeah, I, I think it's interesting that that look, it could have stopped me. It didn't stop me. But I think in many other circumstances, it, it probably would have done. In, in school circumstances, I would not have done it if a teacher looked at me like that because I felt safe in my home. Right, right. So I knew that my mother would still love me even if she was angry. But in a school circumstance or a preschool circumstance, you don't have that same security. You don't know that the teacher will still like you. Right, right. If you make them angry. So that, that's the difference. For me, permission is about feeling safe mm-hmm. and also feeling brave. It's not enough for children to feel safe. They also have to feel brave because I think it's, it's very comfortable to feel safe. But we don't challenge ourselves when we feel safe. So we need to be feeling safe and brave to be able to really take on not only the play and uh, adventurous play and expand our play repertoire, but also in our learning, what we're learning, what we're thinking about our learning, what we're expressing about our learning, how we're answering questions, daring to express our own opinions. All of these things take both a feeling of safety and a feeling of bravery. But it also feels like there's a lot of judgment in general in school. There's a lot of there's a lot of assessment being done. There's a lot of ki- children know from the very start, in fact, that somebody's going to be judged, kind of like you said, if it had been at school, you wouldn't have done it because you were worried about that judgment. What does that impact of that judgment have on this concept of permission? I think we conform. Clearly, I mean, we don't have as much permission if we're conforming in that way because we're, we're adapting. <laughs> we hear so much about educators talking about classroom management and and behaviors of children like that. And I think it's so often it, it results in, in this culture of the adult controlling the environment. How do you avoid that as an educator with young children? For me, it's all about the relationships with every child, understanding their strengths, understanding their triggers, also understanding their glimmers, you know, the, the, the things that will ignite them positively making sure it's not just my relationship with each individual child, but I am creating a collective, a community, so that children know how to listen to each other and they will take care of each other so that there isn't this need of creating a power structure within the children of the hierarchy there as well. So a lot of it is about the relationships. And if the relationships are working and working on children's curiosity and joy, then I know it's going to be working. Right. So, and working means the children are playing. They're playing, but they're also learning. It's it's about creating flow, isn't it? Right. And it's like, I want the children to have their play flow, but I want their learning to flow. And so that their learning feels almost in the same way that play feels. It feels good. My ask my brain scientist husband, about what is play, he said it's the brain adapting to a complex world. Okay. There's many things that the brain makes us do on repeat so that we're learning, we can do it, we can master it. And this is rewarded with endorphins. And that's why play feels good. So basically the the brain is tricking us to learn and to master things by making it feel good. And that's what play is. It's the same way our bodies convince us to procreate. Well, basically he says this the same thing, you know, the play drive and the sex drives, it's the brain making us do things that the body needs to keep on going. It needs it needs to adapt to the world and um, wants us to keep on making babies and things like that. What, what are some essential aspects when you see something that's real play? 
What does it look like? I'm in the middle of writing a new book, oh. and I'm trying to argue the case that play doesn't look like something, it feels like something. And it's a feeling, it's a sense, it's something from within. And so I just wrote, as the book is starting to come together, that if we imagine child A, B, and C, and they're all digging in the sandbox, they all, they're all doing exactly the same thing. Child A is doing it through pure joy. They want to do it, they're doing it, they're curious, there's this power within them that's motivating them to keep on digging. Child B is there purely because child A is doing it and they want to hang out with child A. And child C is there digging because they've been told to do it. Okay. And so what I'm arguing is that there's only child A that is genuinely playing because it's that intrinsic motivation to dig. Child B has the extrinsic motivation to be with child A. So they're not digging as part of their play. Being next to child A is their play. So the digging is like secondary. And like child three probably didn't want to dig in the first place. It could possibly evolve into play mm -hmm. once they get into that flow. But there is that feeling that they don't know how long they have to be there. They don't know what way they're supposed to do it. None of that has been their choice. So for me, it's about the joy. It's about the choice that is really, really important. But they're all doing the same thing. So from the outside, as we look, the doing of play looks identical. So what we have to spend time is reflecting on what is this child's relationship or their emotion or their feeling towards what they're doing? Are they doing this by choice? Are their endorphins being released by doing this? And so for me, child B, for instance, if they're not doing what they want to play, like what their brain motivates them to do, they're losing out on how they would naturally learn and evolve. It would be important for me as an educator to say, can I do something so that child B is doing the playing and child A can do that alongside them so that child B's need to be there next to child A is met, but child B's play needs are also being met. Right. So there's a whole load of questions and a whole load of thinking that's going into these a, B, and C children. But I think it's hard to say, can we recognize it by what they're doing? I think we have to dig even deeper into why are they doing it? How are they doing it? And what's the feeling that's the motivation of what they're doing? Right. Well, that puts the onus on the adult, the teacher, to be an observer. Mm, very much so. You know, I know you talk about that sometimes it's okay for the adult to lead the activities. Tell us, tell us how that works, because that seems very much like maybe the adult controlling the activity, like the older kid coming in and telling the other kids how to do it. How do we, how do we enter into play with children without, I don't know, destroying the play? So when I think of original learning, I am thinking that we have three roles that we're playing. We play teacher, facilitator, and play worker. And so... I am aware all of the time of what roles it is that I am playing to support the children. So sometimes as facilitator, I could be supporting their play or I could be supporting their learning. As teacher, it's very much my role of providing experiences and activities that the children can learn from. It's very much adult-led. And then there is the children's own play, and that I will not mess with. But maybe occasionally children need me as a facilitator so that I will play with them. So I wouldn't technically call it children's own play. It's somewhere like a, a hybrid of where I'm aware of my own power in that. 
And this is why I call it play responsive, because the children have to have adequate amount of their autonomous play to, for me to be able to respond to as a teacher. So the activities and the experiences that I am providing are inspired by the children's play or informed by the children's play. So it's, it's this circle of constantly observing the children, understanding children, pedagogy and child development, all of these different things, observing each child to understand whether they are playing or they're not playing, and also to know when to intervene and when to step back and allow the children to get on. I think occasionally I have been successful of playing with the children as an equal. I think it is an art. I think it's really hard to do because I think most of the time it will go into facilitator mode because it is so hard to let go of our agendas and just yeah. let the play dictate. Yeah. And that's because we're, we're slipping in and out of these different roles. Yeah. But as play worker, when I'm taking on the role play worker, I'm not watching the children, I'm watching the play. And what I'm doing is supporting the play so that the play can continue because I trust that the play, if that works, the children are going to be fine. As a teacher, I'm looking at the children and I'm supporting the children. So yeah, it's, it's not what the children are doing, it's my attitude towards it that affects how I see them and what it is that I'm supporting. Yeah, it seems like almost the great art in that is knowing when to step out. Yeah, and to to be aware that you are going to make mistakes and interfere when you really didn't want to interfere. And hopefully those moments of interference we learn from. Right. And we can say, okay, I interfered. I shouldn't have done that. What have I learned from this? And how can I avoid interfering on another occasion? So I don't think we should be ashamed of making mistakes because I think Mistakes are an important part of learning. Yeah. I think we should be ashamed when we are making the same mistake repeatedly because we have not reflected on those mistakes. We're just doing the same thing and interfering constantly because we have failed to reflect and consider it from another perspective. And that's really, I mean, that is really something that's important to you is this idea of looking at things from different perspectives. I know you've talked mm. to me about this a great deal. You've really encouraged me. You've put me in touch with indigenous people and, and people from all over the world from different perspectives that have allowed me to see the world differently. So I know that that is really important to you as an educator. And I, I think a lot about there must be some level at which the adult needs to perform experiments almost in order to figure out if they're right. Because I'm thinking about child B in your example, you know, who really just wanted to be there because was digging because they wanted to be with that friend. It could be that that child's deep motivation is to befriend this child, and that is their play, is what their joy is, is trying to figure out how to crack this nut. I guess experimental is the only way to look at it and to learn from your mistakes. Absolutely. But I'm also I'm going to have to look at, is child A actually wanting to be with child B, or is child B there alongside because they feel compelled and forced and they're technically afraid of child A? So it might not because they want to be with them. They might because they're afraid of being with them and they're alongside because of that. So there's like, I'm trying to dig down and find out the motivation behind child B, find out what's going on with child A. Why are they engaging with child B? Do either of these children engage with other people? Is it just parallel play? Do they both need support to interact with each other? 
So it's like like an investigation. And he's like, why why is this happening? What's going on in that sandbox? It's not just these three children doing digging. There's so much more to it. Yeah, you you just remind me so much of Socrates. It's just like there's always another question. There's always one more level to go to, and that's what I value about your perspective is that there is always there's something more to think about in every circumstance. I mean, we're dealing with human beings here, and one of the things that you do with children, and I know as part of the original learning approach, is philosophy. Yes, I don't think many people think of young children as philosophers, but you see them as as deep, deep thinkers. Absolutely. Given the the right circumstances, I think the philosophy sessions, when I, when I look at them and, and reflect on them, I realize that it was mostly about listening, learning to listen to each other and valuing the, the voice of the peer. Because I think children say stuff that sounds philosophical uh-huh. nearly all of the time, but it's not always philosophical from them. It's just like a really random question that just randomly popped into the head. Right. It's not like a philosopher that goes, oh, I need to think deeply about this. They don't think that deeply. It's just, it pops into head. It just sounds very philosophical. Right. But I think what the philosophy sessions offered was space to learn to listen to peers, learn to value that other people could have a different opinion from themselves and that it was okay. Learning to recognize the right to change their mind and that that was okay that they didn't have to say the same thing over and over just because they said it once. Uh-huh. I think that was really, really important. And to know how to recognize when other people are listening. Yeah. So it's, it's not the same as philosophy as with adults. But it was a space definitely for the children to feel and to recognize the power of their own opinions and of their own voices and that children's opinions mattered. It sounds almost like you're talking about, you know, it's the the philosophical process that's important, not the right and wrong answers. And I think that's so interesting. And it's so refreshing to hear an educator say, kind of like you're saying, your job is to be curious. And so much of what educators do, especially in the US, and I, I don't know Sweden as well, but the truth is there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of oh. assessment that teachers are spending their time doing. In fact, you know, most parents, when they hear about their child, they're hearing about some deficit of that child, something the child mm. can't do. And it sounds like when we get curious, we stop judging, at least when we're doing our role as play worker, for sure. When we're doing our work as teacher, maybe there's a little more instruction, a little more guidance. There's definitely more guidance. Instruction, if the children request that or require it from me, to do that. So what I'd always start my year with is asking the children if they had any goals. Sometimes it would be, oh, I want to be able to jump from this place or, and I want to be able to do that. So it was really simple. So we did this goal, plan, do. So we do the goal, then we'd plan together. How could we plan so that you could reach your goal? And then they would go and do it. Um, and in the doing, we'd made plans of what they needed from me to be able to do it. And then once they've done it, they'd come back and would reflect on, was it easy? Did you have the right tools? Had I given you the right support? All of those kind of things. And I would ask them if they would like to make another goal. Some did, some didn't. The important thing was just to reflect about the idea that they had power over their own learning and power over it. Sometimes they had really big goals, like I want to be able to read and write. And I was like, okay, so we need to be doing this, 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 and this before we can get there. And so they had these you know, 
divided it up into mini goals of when you can do this, then maybe we can try this. And and I would tell them about how important climbing trees and climbing other things was so they had strong enough hands to write. So they would often tell me, because they knew that I documented their learning, they go, look, look, I'm climbing this and doing this. This is so I can strengthen my hands for writing. Oh, I love it. And they would say, you have to take a photograph of this because they wanted to put it in a logbook. And I would say every, every second week, each child would have done this. I never needed to remind them, never. But for me, it was all about making them aware that they had power over what they were doing at the preschool. And that was what I wanted them to learn from that. Well, and that's like one of the main threads running through the original learning approach is this idea of autonomy. Why is that so important? I mean, why is it so important to put the power in their hands? I mean, after all, aren't they going to run out and kill themselves? We have all of these innate fears that we're born with, fear of heights, fear of blood, all of these things. And what we have to do is actively combat them so that the fears are not running our lives. This is one of the reasons why we need to play in. It is one of these ways to overcome all of these phobias that we have and, and these fears that we have so that we are in control mm-hmm. rather than the fears, so that we don't have these things where like, you get up into a high situation and, and you, can't, you can't do it. Right. And for some children, it, it doesn't have to be particularly high before they're starting to panic. So what I'm doing in the play is let them jump from one centimeter, then two centimeters, then three centimeters. They're building it up so that they always feel powerful. So powerful doesn't mean they can do what they want. It's powerful that they feel that together with others, they can be themselves and that they can thrive. But certainly sometimes, and I'm going to play a devil's advocate here only because I know other people might be thinking this, but sometimes they're motivated to be powerful by exerting power over others, you know, in the Hobbesian sense. Does this happen? I mean, is this is this one of the dangers of autonomy? Of course that happens. From my experience of the last 30 years is that those things happen in a group that lacks autonomy. Huh. So when... The entire group feels autonomous, and this autonomy is a collective autonomy. So it's not like a whole lot of individuals exercising power. It's a whole lot of individuals that know that they can participate and that they're being listened to. Then this need to exert power over others stops. So like all of these things like, you can't come to my birthday party, disappears because they know they don't need to have powers over other people. They know they're being valued, that they know they're already powerful. So yes, I I can understand those fears. But for me, if children are doing that to other children, it's a sign there is not enough autonomy in the group. And the children are seeking power because they don't have enough. The answer is almost always more freedom. It's uh, it, it's interesting to me because you sounds like you're dis- defining anarchy in the best sense of that term. <laughs> and I do think, I do agree with you. I think children are natural anarchists. And they do tend to, when when allowed to interact freely with one another, they listen to the angel rather than the devil more often, I think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think play is considered subversive, really. Yeah, shockingly. And that's why it's being constantly controlled. Because if children were playing or if adults play all the time, we're going to be working out things that the system doesn't want us to work out. That's right. For me, play is about social justice and peace. And control is the antithesis of that. Exactly. 
Suzanne, what an incredible conversation. I just love talking to you and I always feel so much smarter. You've sparked so many things for me to think about and to reflect on. My aim is not to give people answers, but to make people want to ask questions. And because that's where the learning actually happens, the learning starts then. Suzanne, you know, we're about to wrap up here. I just wondered, is there any final words you would like to leave this audience with? To dare to play, to dare to trust play, to be brave, to be curious, and reflect on all your mistakes, and to reach out to others, and to ask questions. I didn't dare ask questions when I was younger. I wish I'd asked more questions. I have always treasured my time with you, and I hope we get to see each other again very soon. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Anything preschoolers do, we must consider not just play, not just process, not just product, but as Suzanne and I discuss, we can't neglect the fourth P, permission. Just as it took me a while to accept the notion that a child's product can be as important as their process, I was at first taken aback by the idea of permission. I mean, after all, children shouldn't need my permission to play. It's their right to play. Who am I to be giving permission? But the truth is that whether we like it or not, there are hierarchies in this world, which makes permission necessary, especially when adults and children are together. As I've come to understand it, permission is an experience between two people or between two aspects of oneself, characterized by allowing, accepting, and belonging. It doesn't have to be a formal thing. In fact, it's usually as simple as a facial expression. In our conversation, Suzanne talks about her own experience as a child playing on the slide and how an adult's frown let her know she did not have permission. To give another example, imagine a toddler who discovers a beetle. If she turns to smile at her grandfather and he smiles back, even without saying anything, this is permission for her to be who she is. The toddler now knows that they are in an environment of permission. Not only that, but it's a place where the child is also giving permission to the adult. It's only within the environment of permission, a place where we know we are welcome to be ourselves, that we can fully and honestly engage in the playful process of anything that is personally meaningful. It's in this context that we can share our unique, individual potential with society. You can't truly be yourself without community, Suzanne once told me. You can only try to be your unique self together with others. This is why permission is essential. This conversation about permission is part of a wider discussion about what Suzanne calls the original learning approach. What stands at the center of her approach is a thoughtful adult one who does not oversimplify, but rather embraces all the beautiful complexity of human relationships. It means understanding that we serve multiple roles in the lives of young children. It means being open to change. It means listening with our whole selves. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Suzanne as much as I did. So that's it for this episode of Teacher Tom's Podcast. Thanks for playing with me. And a great thank you to Suzanne for this thought-provoking conversation. You'll find out more about Suzanne and her work at interactionimagination.com. And in the show notes, you'll find more about her and a link to her website. I'm Tom Hobson, and you've listened to Teacher Tom's podcast, Taking Play Seriously. You can find out more about me at teachertomsworld.com. That's T-E-A-C-H-E-R-T-O-M-S-W-O-R-L-D dot C-O-M. Teacher Tom's podcast is a part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Course Lab and Just Between Coaches. 
Stay tuned for more fun episodes by following us on the Miracy FM YouTube channel or your preferred podcast player. If you found today's insights valuable, take a moment to leave us a starred review. It'll help us reach more people like you. Again, thanks for playing with me, and I'll catch you in the next episode.